Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 21st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folds with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. The new WCAB panel decision in Kaiser Foundation Hospitals versus WCAB seems to limit the application of Benson apportionment in conclusive presumption total disability cases. Here's the backstory to this case. There are situations in California workers' compensation where there is a conclusive presumption of total disability. Labor Code Section 4662 provides that any of the following permanent disabilities shall be conclusively presumed to be total in character. Loss of both eyes or the sight thereof. Loss of both hands or the use thereof. An injury resulting in practically total paralysis and an injury to the brain resulting in incurable mental incapacity or insanity. In these four situations, the conclusive presumption would circumvent the AMA guide's rating, which in some cases would be less than total disability. Presumptions in litigation can be rebuttable or, at the other extreme, they can be conclusive. The peace officer or firefighter presumptions of injury are examples of rebuttable presumptions. An employer can overcome the rebuttable presumption with competent evidence. Not so with a conclusive presumption. It is not possible to overcome a conclusive presumption with any evidence. The competing doctrine in this new case is the 2007 N-Bank decision in Diane Benson versus Permanente Medical Group, which was an employer-favorable decision on apportionment. The board held in Benson that the workers' comp judge must determine and apportion to the cause of disability for each industrial injury instead of providing just one award for the total under the old Wilkinson rule. The new panel decision of Kaiser Foundation Hospitals versus WCAB seems to limit Benson apportionment when there is a conclusive presumption of total disability under Labor Code Section 4662. The worker in this case suffered specific and continuous trauma injuries to his knees and spine and also suffered a stroke which met the criteria of a 100% permanent disability pursuant to the conclusive presumption for brain injury in Labor Code Section 4662D. The employer, employer attempted to apportion the 100% among the cumulative and specific injuries as Benson would require. If this were successful, the total sum of all cases would not equate in dollars to the value of 100% disability in one case. In a split opinion, the WCAB ruled that the application of conclusive presumption precluded apportionment as between applicants' cumulative and specific injuries under the Benson case. This is a preliminary report of the case, which may be subject to the appellate process. The case should be monitored to see if it is successfully appealed. A significant number of professional athletes, including NFL players, have filed claims before the California Workers' Compensation Appeals Board for industrial injuries even if they live elsewhere. Jurisdiction in California is based upon a number of scenarios. Some are based upon the player having played at least one game in California during the alleged continuous trauma period. Some cases base jurisdiction upon the fact that the contract of employment was entered into in California when the player's contract was mailed here for a California agent to sign, even though the player was never in California. 
There's now a great deal of litigation between the NFL teams and these players, with the teams attempting to limit the ability of players to proceed under California law. One closely watched California case is the one filed by Bruce Matthews, who played NFL football from 1983 to 2002. During his NFL career, Matthews was employed by the Houston Oilers and its successor in interest, the Tennessee Titans. On August 5, 2010, an arbitrator issued an arbitration award forcing Matthews to proceed under Tennessee law, although he was not prevented from filing the claim in California. Matthews filed suit in a federal district court in San Diego, requesting the court vacate the arbitration award. However, the district court affirmed the arbitration. A similar case is making news in Pittsburgh, and a federal judge has been asked to rule on the player's case. Kendall M. Newson caught just two passes in his NFL career, but now the former Miami Dolphin is the star of a legal battle in the war between the teams and the players. Lawyers for the Dolphins asked U.S. Magistrate Judge Lisa Lenahan to stop Mr. Newsom's workers' compensation case related to a 2005 knee injury sustained in a preseason game at Heinz Field that ended his career. They said the claim should be decided by an arbitrator, not by workers' compensation judge Pamela L. Briston. Lawyers for Mr. Newsom and the NFL Players Association countered that there was no legal precedent for a federal judge stopping a state workers' compensation case and added that such a measure would be especially damaging due to the current contract disputes between the league and the players. An attorney who represents the union in contract talks claims that there's going to be a lockout of the players on March 3rd because there's absolutely no chance of reaching a contract agreement. If the lockout occurs, the union will decertify and arbitrations will be almost impossible to resolve, leaving Mr. Newsom in limbo. If granted workers' compensation benefits under Pennsylvania law, Newsom would be entitled to $716 a week plus coverage for medical expenses from the injury. The Dolphins want Mr. Newsom's payments and medical treatment to be decided under Florida law. There's a top weekly benefit is $651 a week, and attorneys for the players said that Florida law is far less worker-friendly than Pennsylvania's. The Dolphins have, for 25 years, had a unique agreement with the union. They are not required to be part of the regular Florida workers' compensation system. They instead have promised to pay equivalent benefits, but awarded through arbitration rather than workers' compensation courts. In around 100 cases, though, players have filed workers' compensation claims in the states in which their injuries occurred, and the team has invoked arbitration. In Mr. Newsom's case, the team and players went to the arbitration while the workers' compensation case continued. In September, a workers' compensation judge ruled that the agreement between the Dolphins and the union did not prevent her from deciding Mr. Newsom's case. The team then filed a federal lawsuit asking that workers' compensation case be stopped so that the arbitration can proceed. And now our fraud report. A federal task force has brought criminal charges against doctors, nurses, and healthcare executives on one of the largest medical fraud cases in the country. Those arrested are accused of cheating the government out of $225 million by making fraudulent claims taking kickbacks or money laundering. 
According to the Los Angeles Times, the federal government's Medicare Fraud Task Force brought criminal charges against 111 people in nine cities. Authorities said the defendants, including five in Los Angeles, cheated the government out of more than $225 million. The sweep of arrests was so massive that it took more than 700 federal agents to round up the suspects. Since the task force was started in March 2007, 990 people have been charged in false billing schemes totaling more than $2.3 billion. And nearly 750 of them have been convicted. In addition, the federal, state, and local task force last year recovered $4 billion in fines and other restitution payments on behalf of taxpayers that had been lost to corruption. The charges in this latest takedown run the gamut of offenses. Some are accused of submitting claims to Medicare for treatments that were medically unnecessary or never provided. Some are suspected of recruiting patients for hospitals and doctors' offices and then pocketing lucrative cash kickbacks. Others are accused of setting up phony schemes involving home health care, physical and occupational therapy, nerve conduction tests, and prescription medicine. In one case, authorities said a podiatrist in Detroit billed the government for removing toenails that were never removed. In Los Angeles, authorities said the five suspects schemed to defraud Medicare of more than $28 million in false claims for medical equipment and home health care. In Chicago, authorities said 11 suspects were connected to businesses that billed Medicare more than $6 million for home health care diagnostic testing, and prescription drugs. Other arrests were made in Brooklyn, New York, Houston, Dallas, Miami, Tampa, Florida, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. For the third time this year, authorities have arrested a Hacienda La Puente Unified School District employee on charges related to workers' compensation fraud, according to an article in the Whittier Daily News. Police recently arrested 54-year-old Alfred Thomas Velasquez. He faces three counts of insurance fraud for allegedly faking an injury so he could collect workers' compensation benefits. According to SIU investigators, Velasquez claimed he injured his neck and shoulder while trying to catch a falling bag of fertilizer in 2009. Shortly after he made the claim, an investigator recorded video of him putting up Christmas decorations, some of which appeared to be large and heavy, and hammering stakes into the ground. Investigators said it was somewhat unusual to have so many cases of fraud uncovered for one employer in such a short period of time. On February 2nd, Patricia Elena Leon, age 41 of Hacienda Heights, was arrested at the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Industry Station. She has been charged with insurance fraud, perjury, and grand theft. Leon claimed injuries to her left knee, chest, and lower back in September of 2010 after being kicked by a special education student. Investigators said that while Leon claimed to be disabled, she was videotaped working at a medical clinic for about two weeks. The first district employee to be arrested was Victoria Jimenez, age 45, of Hacienda Heights, who worked as a payroll technician. According to investigators, Jimenez began complaining of pain in her neck and left shoulder in 2009. Jimenez claimed her injury was so severe that she was unable to use one of her arms. But investigators found evidence to the contrary. She was observed on several occasions lifting a child or a baby up and down. She also held a job at the Los Angeles County Fair during the same time.
She has entered a plea of not guilty and she denies all of the charges. Preliminary hearings are set for both Velasquez and Leon on March 10th, and the preliminary hearing for Jimenez is scheduled for February 25th. And in regulatory news, a new study just published for the Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation examines how injury frequency and costs of older workers differ from younger workers and how this will affect the workers' compensation system. There has been concern about the impact of an aging workforce on occupational safety and health. The study shows that injury risk through the age of 64 declines for men while the risk for women stays constant or increases gradually with age. And what they called a surprising and related finding, the study found that the risks of occupational injury is 20 to 50 percent higher for women in the same job working the same hours as men. This difference becomes more severe with age. Consistent with prior research, the duration of disability increases steadily also with age. However, contrary to most previous research, the study found that women have slightly shorter durations of disability than men. Nonetheless, the study claims that the impact of the aging workforce on expected workers' compensation costs is modest. Frequency and duration effects partially offset each other, and older workers still represent a minority of all workers. The aging workforce will increase workers' compensation costs by only about 2 percent as of 2030. The small changes may mask some real concerns for employers and workers, however. The most immediate concern is the impact of an aging workforce on Medicare's effort to recover medical treatment costs from the workers' compensation system. Workers' compensation Medicare set-asides for older workers eligible or nearly eligible for Medicare have increased from $180 million in 2004 to $950 million in 2008, or from 1 to 4 percent of total workers' compensation paid medical. Both the total amount and the percentage of workers' compensation medical costs have continued to rise and should exceed 8 to 10 percent of medical costs by 2020. The Commission made a number of recommendations as a result of the study, such as more research to determine why there is a difference in injury rates between men and women. The California business community has expressed concern about the potential for erosion of the SB 899 workers' compensation reforms under the politics of a new, more liberal, Brown administration. However, AB 11, one of the first bills introduced this year should actually reduce workers' compensation costs for small businesses. And it was introduced by Assemblyman Anthony Portatino, a Democrat. A $400 million government fund created in a bill by former Assemblyman Paul Kerkorian in 2009 was supposed to have stimulated employment in California by providing financial incentives to small employers who hired new employees. The problem with this fund was that there were few takers. Today, there's still about $360 million left in the fund unclaimed by any California employer. Portentino's AB 11 would give the smaller of small businesses, those with 20 or fewer employees and receipts of $1 million or less, a 20% credit toward workers' compensation insurance out of what is left of this existing fund. For example, if their workers' compensation premiums cost $1,000, they would now pay $800 in premium. 
The bill would set aside about $200 million of the already dedicated fund for this purpose and would be first come, first serve. No money would be added to the state budget. AB 11 makes sense and is already gaining traction in the business world. Portentino's bill doesn't require businesses to hire workers, but will help them lower their costs, which in turn could cause them to hire workers, expand their businesses, or both. And in medical news, a study in the February 15th issue of Spine, the leading subspecialty journal for the treatment of spinal disorders, concludes that spinal fusion surgery leads to worse long-term outcomes for workers' compensation pain, uh, patients with chronic low back pain. The results suggest that this fusion operation may not be an effective operation for workers' compensation patients with certain causes of low back pain. Using Ohio workers' compensation data, researchers identified 725 workers with chronic low back pain who also underwent spinal fusion surgery. Spinal fusion is an operation done to fuse together adjacent vertebrae in certain types of chronic back problems. Most of the patients in the study had degenerative disc disease, herniated discs, or nerve root disease. The researchers assessed the final treatment outcomes, including return to work, disability, and use of strong pain medications at two years follow-up. They compared the results of the spinal fusion group with those in a random sample of 725 patients who underwent non-surgical conservative treatments, such as physical therapy and exercises. Almost all categories of outcomes were worse for patients undergoing spinal fusion. Just over one-fourth of spinal fusion patients had returned to work, compared to two-thirds of those treated without surgery. 27% of patients in the spinal fusion group had repeat surgery, while 36% experienced some type of complication. 11% of the spinal fusion patients had permanent disability compared with 2% of patients treated without surgery. Most spinal fusion patients continued using opioid drugs after their surgery with many taking higher doses. There were also more deaths in the spinal fusion group. The use of spinal fusion surgery for chronic low back pain has increased dramatically in recent years despite a lack of consistent evidence that improves patient outcomes. Although it's not a controlled scientific trial, the study raises questions about the long-term effectiveness of spinal fusion surgery for workers' compensation patients with chronic low back pain. Spinal fusion should be cautiously considered in workers' compensation patients. And in national news, several states are seeking aggressive comp reform this year. While the destiny of politics in California workers' compensation remains uncertain, several other states are in the active process of conservative reform measures. Republicans gained seats in Congress and in state legislatures last year, which has helped workers' compensation reform legislation gain momentum in Illinois, Montana, Oklahoma, and Kansas. In Illinois, before the elections last year, employers sought the right to designate doctors for injured employees. They also wanted to reduce the state's medical fee schedule, deny benefits when an injured employee tests positive for drugs and alcohol, and require the Illinois Workers' Compensation Commission to adopt utilization review findings except in unique cases. The proposal being discussed this year would incorporate last year's plan plus 
mandate the use of American Medical Association treatment standards. Illinois employers also want to make injuries compensable only if a workplace accident is the primary cause of an injury. Meanwhile, in Montana, officials of the Montana Chamber of Commerce said they expect employers to gain a comp reform law this year also. HB 334, sponsored by Republicans, is the preferred bill for meeting their goals. Among other changes, the bill would end medical benefits for most permanent partial disability claims five years after an injury. It would allow insurers to designate a physician for injured workers and require applying the sixth edition of the AMA Guides for Rating Permanent Impairment. Also last week, Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon challenged legislatures during her State of the State Address to craft reform legislation that would reduce legal and medical costs while returning injured workers to work sooner. The Republican governor and Republican leadership of Oklahoma's House and Senate, both of which recently added Republican members, want workers' compensation reforms this year. More than 30 workers' comp bills have been introduced in Oklahoma. Among other measures, the Chamber of Commerce wants the Oklahoma Workers' Compensation Court replaced by an administrative system that would encourage mediation or settlement discussions before litigation. It also wants increased use of established treatment guidelines and legislation that would encourage employers to use certified medical plans, which are preferred provider organizations under Oklahoma's work comp system. In Kansas, meanwhile, the House Committee on Commerce and Economic Development heard HB 2134 last week. The bill, sponsored by the committee, represents compromises between labor and business. Under the bill, injured workers would gain increased maximum benefit caps that have not been raised since 1993. Additional proposals to revamp workers' compensation laws could emerge in even more states this year because of recent political shifts. But it remains too early to say whether more states will embrace reforms this year. Should the California Liberal Administration seek to erode SB 899 in the coming years, they would be doing so in a climate where other states are headed in the other direction. And in other news, the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California, or WCIRB, has recognized Employers' Compensation Insurance Company for its record of excellent payroll audit performance. Employers achieved a test audit error ratio of 6.9% as compared to the California statewide average of 13.8% in 2010. WCIRB, California's designation of excellent, exemplifies employers' commitment to operational excellence and best practices across all facets of the organization. The 6.9% error ratio for payroll test audits completed by the WCIRB during the previous four quarters meets the maximum standard of performance. Employers' Compensation Insurance Company will now be excluded from payroll test audit selection for the next two years. To meet the maximum standard, no more than 10% of the policies test audited may develop a difference in excess of $600 and 2% of premium at pure premium rates over the prior eight quarters. For the total eight quarters, the employer compensation insurance error ratio was 5.6%. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. 
And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please stop by again next week to see us again.